so much of this discussion and dialogue around not just the right to an abortion, but other rights is dependent upon the very credibility of these justices. And they testified before the United States Senate and had very different things to say about Roe versus Wade. You know, it has been long established that justices shouldn't preview how they're going to vote. And so I struggle to ding them for this, given that they necessarily have to demur on this question a little bit. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta, and The Lost Debate team is on a two-week break, so I've asked two of my friends to fill in for Corey and Ricky this week and next. And as you'll soon discover, I am outnumbered ideologically at a really interesting time as a lot of Supreme Court decisions come down. And so if you're a progressive like me tuning into this episode, this is truly a test of whether you truly want to hear different opinions than yours. And our guest co-hosts are Liz Wolf, an associate editor and writer for Reason, and Stephen Kent, a political writer, media commentator, and author of How the Force Can Fix the World. Liz and Stephen, welcome to The Lost Debate Show. Thanks so much for having us. Pleasure to be here, Ravi. Well, we've got a packed show. We're going to cover the Supreme Court's recent ruling overturning New York's concealed carry permit law. Gun rights advocates claim this is a victory for freedom and a natural application of the Second Amendment, while gun control advocates claim this ruling will turn downtown Manhattan into a much more dense version of a Wild West town. Then we'll discuss new data on Gen Z's political leanings, goals, and even their attitudes towards sex, careers, marriage, and finances before turning to a lengthy intercept piece that catalogs a host of self-inflicted problems facing progressive organizations. But of course, we'll start with the biggest news of the week. On Friday, the Supreme Court handed down a decision written by Justice Alito that overturned the landmark 1973 Wade v. Wade decision. Alito was joined in his opinion by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And Chief Justice John Roberts issued a concurrence agreeing to uphold the Mississippi law in question, but arguing that the majority went too far in overruling Roe. The three liberal justices, of course, dissented. Liz, let's start with you. Was this the right decision? I am not a Supreme Court scholar, but yes, I believe this was the right decision. When Roe was first decided, you know, almost 50 years ago now, it was ultimately uh, the court sort of inventing a right out of thin air. It was not something that reflected the majority will, which to be fair, the court is not a majoritarian institution. But for many people, it rubbed them the wrong way because the court was basically predicating its argument for a constitutional right to an abortion. It was locating this in a privacy right. And then it built on this a little bit later with Planned Parenthood v. Casey and established the undue burden standard that, that had been used. And so these two pieces were sort of odd legal reasoning to the point where even very liberal pro-abortion rights jurists like Ruth Bader Ginsburg had really criticized the jurisprudential framework that our abortion rights had been built on. So I think there's a very strong legal argument to be made that this was always sort of, uh, you know, bad from a, a legal standpoint. It was poorly constructed. It very much trounced all over federalist standards. This idea that there ought to be more and more decision making returned to the states, that decision making ought to be done on a more local le level wherever possible. You know, this was really something that flew in the face of majority will. It flew in the face of sound legal logic and it flew in the face of federalism for a long time. So all of my personal pro-life views aside, I, I think there's very strong arguments to be made, even for, for liberals to say, yeah, a lot of this, this legal framework that had been established needed to be scrapped. Well, Stephen, how about you? Where do you come down on this? Well, I can't say it much better than Liz already has, but I do come down in favor of this ruling, mostly just on the grounds that you know American politics for, again, the past 50 years has been very much thrown out of balance between people's belief in institutions, the trust in our separation of different branches, and them checking one another and sticking to different lanes. What happened with Roe and then was reasserted with Casey, I view very much as the court acting as a legislative branch and moving beyond where the people's will was uh, and where Congress was actually willing to go in writing law and creating, again, rights out of thin air and asserting those through the court. It's detrimental, I think, to the fabric of the country and our general shared beliefs in these institutions to protect people's rights and to uphold rule of law. 
So I understand that this ruling is going to very much throw sort of the status quo completely out of whack, but I do think that it's going to put us back on the track towards balance of power in this country. The thing that this ruling shouldn't be interpreted as doing is outlawing abortion and making that the law of the land. That's not the case. You know, states like New York, where Ravi uh, and I live, we will continue to have abortion be fully legal until week 24. In places like Virginia, week 25, though I know Youngkin is thinking about is mulling, altering that. But in many places, in Illinois and California, in New York, in some of these huge population centers, a woman's right to an abortion is not going away. It is remaining very, very secure. What this really does is reflects our weird national patchwork of, honestly, very conflicting opinions about this moral question And I think this reflects that national patchwork just a little bit better. I agree that this doesn't automatically ban abortion, but I think given some laws on the books already, that the result of this decision is going to be that abortion is banned. And I think 26 states is what the, at least what the Guttmacher Institute estimates. And McConnell hasn't ruled out a national abortion ban if Republicans take power. Now, I think that given that this is a constitutional discussion, right, this is all about the opinion itself, I want to really dig in and say, all right, what kind of reasoning did these justices give and how forthright have they been with the American people? Because I think so much of this discussion and dialogue around not just the right to an abortion, but other rights is dependent upon the very credibility of these justices. And they testified, a lot of these justices, before the United States Senate and had very different things to say about Roe versus Wade when they were trying to get confirmed than they did in this decision. Let's roll some clips. Courts in general should follow their past precedents. And it's important for a variety of reasons. It's important because it limits the power of the, of the judiciary. It's important because it protects reliance interests. And it's important because it, ref- it reflects the view that Courts should respect the judgments and the wisdom that are embodied in prior judicial decisions. Senator, again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade, decided in 1973, is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The reliance interest considerations are important there. And all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent have to be considered. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years, as you know. And uh, most prominently, most importantly, reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. My rough sense is that, you know, it has been long established that justices shouldn't preview how they're going to vote, how they're going to rule. And so I struggle to ding them for this, given that they necessarily have to demur on this question a little bit. And so I think it's a little bit of a how we feel about how they spoke in the confirmation hearings is to some degree a little bit of a Rorschach, where the degree to which we're uncomfortable with the ultimate outcomes that are created by this Dobbs ruling is perhaps one of the factors that influences whether we think they were deceitful. Yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic on a, a number of grounds when it comes to people's feeling over the ruling and the decisions being made by this court. But I am very unsympathetic about what goes on in those Senate confirmation hearings where it has become this sort of gross political process where you used to see sort of bipartisan consensus around different candidates put up to the court because there was a sense that, all right, you know, these are are these appointees or these nominees to the court. And everybody just looks at their background, looks at which circuit courts they served on and goes, okay, this person knows the law and sends them on their way. We're in a new era of politics where it is completely party line vote on these candidates and they are used as proxies for the political parties. And the kinds of questions that they were getting were just meant to try and disqualify them from being able to get voted on based on democratic priorities. I just I just don't have any sympathy for them kind of punting on those tough questions and trying to get out of making a ruling on Roe on the Senate floor. I mean, how unhealthy would it be for a republic if they were attempting to preview how they would rule 
during Senate confirmation hearings, right? Like that would be a really unhealthy thing that flies in the face of what we all want. If you're saying like previewing how you'd rule, I still don't see what the problem with that is. But let's let's put that aside for a second and say describing what you what rights you believe exist or not, which seems like something that would be absolutely relevant to ask somebody who's going to sit on the Supreme Court. Now, they could just say nothing. They could say, all right, I have nothing to say about Roe versus Wade, but that's not what they did. You know, Thomas said that he believes in a right to privacy. This is what Kavanaugh had to say, just to reiterate it. He said, I said, it's settled as precedent of the Supreme Court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe versus Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past 45 years. And then he later called it precedent on precedent. Now, if he was being honest, first of all, he didn't have to say that. If, if you were applying your standard, he would have said nothing about Roe versus Wade. But he was highly suggestive that in that statement that he would uphold it. Now, he could have then added to say, now I do think there are legitimate questions about where this comes from. And if a case came before me, I'd want to explore them. You know, I think like our democracy, if, if he truly wants to be a part of a nonpartisan judiciary, then I would think it would behoove him to describe his feelings if he's going to go halfway there, right? Because otherwise he's suggesting something that isn't true. And at least you know, Republican Senator Susan Collins seemed to believe that he deceived her. I mean, those confirmation hearings were, in my view, a terrible farce, uh, something that people were not interested in extending due process to this man. People were not interested in having a sober evaluation of his record or, you know, complaints about possible sexual misconduct in his past. I really struggle to ding him too hard for conduct in those incredibly heated confirmation hearings that in my view were such an embarrassment. They really made an embarrassment of this whole process, which I think has some utility or ideally should have some utility, but in this case did not. Let's take for a given. Like I think we probably have slightly different opinions on Kavanaugh as it relates to those allegations, but I do believe in due process. Now, let's take for a given that he was innocent of those charges. He went a step further to me and made this hearing more of a farce, in my opinion. And people can go back and listen to the full context of his remarks. Like, if you were to apply this in any other context, this is completely dishonest to me. And that bears on this court because this question of stare decisis isn't just some kind of, like, high-minded legal concept. It has to do with people who are enjoying certain rights that the court has laid down can continue to have the security that those rights are going to continue to exist. And it goes right to the implications of this ruling where people think that Griswold, Lawrence versus Texas, Obergefell are next. People think that though, primarily because of Thomas's dissent. But I do think it's worth always noting whenever we bring that up, because I, I am, I'm sympathetic to people's concerns there. I think people are coming from a very authentic place of fear and I, I fully understand why they feel that way, but I do think it is always worth reiterating that that is like a slightly cuckoo Thomas dissent that really uh, we have no indication to believe that the remaining eight justices in any way share Thomas's views on this. So I do think it's worth watching out for, and I don't want to be in any way dismissive of people's concerns there, but like the idea of a burger fell falling tomorrow is just to me not something that we have enough evidence to be actively worried about it. Well, let me explain why I think that the Thomas concurrence is the only honest part of the majority. You're right. It's a concurrence. My bad. Yeah. No, but it, it's so like Alito writes in his opinion that substantive due process, basically the only substantive due process rights we have are those that are deeply rooted in our nation's history. Now, it's really hard to say that, you know, sodomy or, you know, the right to gay marriage, et cetera, are deeply rooted in our nation's history in the way that Alito describes in his opinion. So when Thomas says, hey, you know, Obergefell and Lawrence and Griswold are next, to me, he's being honest in a way that the other members of the majority are not, because he's saying, look, like you're saying that there are no substantive due process rights, almost as explicitly written in the Constitution or deeply rooted in our nation's history. So to me, to me, that's not like a cuckoo theory. He's actually saying the quiet part out loud. No, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I do think of, of Justice Thomas as being honest. I think of them all as being honest, probably with the exception of John Roberts, who just seems to want to straddle the line whenever he can to make everybody happen and, you know, enshrine his legacy as a moderate. But, you know, Thomas is a professional in his field. I mean, if he wants to, to quibble with the basis for Obergefell, uh, he's welcome and should do that on paper. Uh, it helps us, I think, understand the laws and the freedoms by which we enjoy. But, you know, to the substantive due process point, 
The question is, did the government pass legislation? And then, like you said, did the legislation then ban some kind of previously enjoyed right? I don't think Obergefell is ever going to cross that line or meet that sort of point because it's not tied to uh, removing an existing right. Yeah, well, I think like in this case, this is why I bring this up is the why I brought up the hearings is that so much of like if I'm somebody enjoying the right to gay marriage, for example, I now have to trust a group of people who at least I personally believe have not been honest. And so if they weren't honest about Roe when they were in front of the US Senate, how am I to know that they're honest now in this opinion when they write that these next rights aren't they're they're not up next? I mean, I think people are to some degree distracting from just how fraught and just how legitimately deeply divided people are on the abortion issue in this country in a way that doesn't apply to birth control, in a way that doesn't apply to gay marriage in terms of uh, you know, it's 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 difficult because the the mechanism by which an issue ends up before the Supreme Court is not it being a hot button issue that's seized out of thin air that the Supreme Court just decides on a whim to rule on. But also, we need to consider the degree to which uh, these are things where there's any sort of significant contingent in the U.S. that legitimately opposes these things being rights. And there's not, I mean, aside from a very fringe group of Catholics, I remember I looked up details on what percentage of Catholics actually legitimately oppose use of hormonal contraceptives. And it's something like, it's like in the single digits of Catholics, and then Catholics are already a small minority in this country, and there's not really a Jewish contingent or an evangelical contingent that really majorly opposes birth control. So in terms of like Griswold, and there being some kind of, you know, pervasive sentiment that seeks to reduce our access to contraception, this just isn't the same type of political issue with the same texture as abortion, in my view. But I think like if you were to look at sodomy, for example, or gay marriage, for, throughout most of our lifetimes, these were things that were banned in significant numbers of US states, including most of them. And so you could imagine now a world where a Tate Reeves in Mississippi, for example, is emboldened and passes an anti-sodomy law or an anti-gay marriage law, and that would make its way to the Supreme Court. But I do think like the polling on this is not like even Reason, Ma Reason Magazine this week, there are articles citing 80 plus percent of Americans who believe in some sense of a right to abortion. Now, I would agree that people on my side of the issue overstate the case later into the pregnancy in terms of what the, the public believes there. But that would fly in the face of blanket bans or at least close to blanket bans with very narrow exceptions that are literally now on the books in you know some states that have sizable amounts of progressives and independents. I think this is an example of how we can look to Drag Queen Story Hour as something that's really uh, heartening. <laughs> because no, legitimately, though, I think it's actually it's a success story, right? Because think about it this way. Our culture war has moved on from litigating the question of whether the gay couple depicted on that show Modern Family should have the right to marry each other and adopt a child. Like we've moved on from that question in pop culture, in society. And now we're, for whatever reason, litigating the question of whether or not drag queens should be paid by New York City public schools to do story hour, uh, you know, for, for kids in third grade. So I do take what you're saying seriously, but I do think also on the issue of, I mean, abortion bans, yeah, we are going to have a patchwork where some of these trigger laws will make it so that states like my state, Texas, is going from a six-week abortion ban to now within the next 25 or so days the trigger law will be enacted that make that makes abortion entirely illegal in this state. But I do think it is worth noting that to some degree, this is reflective of the sentiments of Texans. Perhaps not, it's difficult to fully sort out the degree to which a majority of Texans, especially as demographic changes affect big cities, the degree to which it is reflective of this. But there are a lot of people, pro-lifers out there like me, who want to live in a state where you cannot access an abortion via an abortion clinic. I don't want to have that on my block. And I think that's actually a good segue to the kind of patchwork that we are going to have in this country. And I, when I when I look at it on a map, it's very similar, I think, to the European Union and their sort of diverse approach to how they regulate abortion, even though the, the NATO sort of leaders who are meeting with Biden in, in Germany this week are pretending like Europe doesn't have any disagreement or liberalization on these issues. So the only three states where there are just going to be a, a total red line ban is South Dakota, Louisiana, and Kentucky. And Louisiana's uh, ban is already now getting tangled up 
in court. And those are, laws are going to go into an effect and have an immediate ban on most abortions unless there is an immediate risk to the mother. Now, you've also got these 10 others with so-called trigger laws, like you mentioned, that are going to require the attorney general, governor, or legislature to certify that the Supreme Court's opinion does indeed overturn Roe. And I think that's a really interesting uh, procedural step that the, that the state in some way has to recognize <laughs> the legitimacy of the Supreme Court ruling. Because just imagine some like California attorney generals or New York or wherever being like, you know what, we're not going to comply with this ruling. What kind of can of worms does that open up? So then they're going to have like a 30 day delay for those things to take place. I think the 30 day delay has already started because it's starts at the time that the Dobbs decision was handed down. Is that correct? That is correct. And those states include North and South Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming. And the 13 states that are now cracking down on abortion in in these ways also have different exceptions to what their near total bans are going to be. While they all allow abortions to save the life of the woman, only five include that oft-mentioned rape or incest exception. And that's going to be a point of you know hot contention across the country. But abortion is going to remain legal in the remaining 27 states. And though the laws in those states are definitely not uniform, like Colorado, New Jersey, Oregon, and Delaware, these are the four states that protect the right of abortion throughout the entire pregnancy, also known as up to birth. Incredibly, incredibly extreme abortion liberalization, as opposed to the states that are cracking down like Dakota and Kentucky. It's worth paying attention to some of the class differences that will emerge where for rich women or for women who get, can get time off of work, you know, their, their situation will be different than for poor women. It's a question of how empowered state prosecutors will now be to snoop and to um, possibly get these women into trouble. But I do think it's worth noting that we've sort of seen a little bit of a, a framework already emerge as to how this actually happens. I do want to say, I just looked up, uh, Mississippi has a trigger law on gay marriage. So if the, the court did, I always knew my, my former state of Mississippi will come through on this kind of stuff, but they do have a trigger law. So I think this gets back to like, I'm significantly concerned with people who are enjoying other rights right now. I think rights that I think a lot of us agree they should have, whether they're explicitly mentioned in the constitution or not. Like I think 70% of Americans now support gay marriage, according to the last Gallup polling that I saw, and it's been going up ever since, but it, it still is the law on the books in Mississippi that if the Supreme Court overturns a right to gay marriage, that if you are in Mississippi, if you are enjoying a gay marriage, that, that gay marriage is no longer valid. I think that the right for the past 50 years has been highly motivated and organized across a number of 501c3 organizations and advocacy groups to train their legal talent, steep people in knowledge of the Constitution, and figure out frameworks for rolling back laws passed in the 60s and 70s or rulings, reversing rulings in the 60s and 70s that were just sort of the product of the progressive era movement. And I just think that the left is going to need to at some point contend with what is in the Constitution and try to find champions from their circles to advance causes that they care about based on what exists <laughs> in the document itself rather than what they wished exist. Yes. Well, speaking of the document, we're going to turn to the Supreme Court decision from another Supreme Court decision from last week, which is the case of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This is a case in which the court struck down a New York uh, handgun licensing law that required New Yorkers who want to carry a handgun in public to show a special need to defend themselves. This was a 6-3 ruling. So your buddy, John Roberts, actually joined the majority opinion here. And this is an opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas. And it's the first significant decision on gun rights in over a decade. And it was pretty far reaching. The court made clear that the Second Amendment's guarantee of the right to keep and bear arms protects a broad right to carry a handgun outside of the home for self-defense. Stephen, let's start with you. What do you think of this ruling? I'm really glad to see that normal everyday people besides celebrities and former cops can now can now protect themselves and carry on the streets of New York and uh, probably now in uh, in San Francisco where they definitely need it. I am not blind to the fact that there are going to be uh, ripple effects and and probably spikes in all sorts of um, gun related violence in these cities and I I'm sympathetic to some of the concerns of people like former mayor 
Mike Bloomberg, who who sort of mentioned like at this time of of increased crime and gun violence in our cities, like is this really the right time to be trying to to go in this direction on gun rights? Have you have you checked the mood in the room? And I, I get that. However, <laughs> the mood in the room and the mismanagement of major cities and rising crime should not have any sort of relationship to whether or not people do in fact have a right to carry outside the home. It was never a question of timing. It was always a question of what is right. Uh, so this was the right ruling. And New York City um, has tried for years to avoid this happening by putting down gun regulations and then reining them back in as soon as they get a significant lawsuit against them. They will sometimes do temporary <laughs> breaks and amendments to their laws so that they don't actually have to go to court. The Firearms Policy Coalition has writ written about this ad nauseum. And this one eventually stuck and made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it's a domino that's just going to knock down laws all the way from California to Maryland, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. This is what happens when you overreach. There's a couple of problems I have with this. One is that Thomas explained in his ruling that the court should uphold gun restrictions only if there's a tradition of such regulation in U.S. history. Now, I find this interesting because the court didn't recognize an individual right to bear arms until 2008. And every time it had a chance to do so, it went the other way. And part of the reason why is because both at the time that people were debating the Second Amendment it was clear that they were talking about military service. Actually, in the original wording of the Second Amendment, they talked about conscientious objectors, right? And obviously, the language of a well-regulated militia is in there. And that's why the court, including Warren Burger, like the super conservative Justice Warren Burger, called an individual right to bear arms a farce on the American people. Now, even if you put that all aside... Everybody agrees that there's some kind of limiting principles on the Second Amendment, right? Like we don't believe in a right to nuclear weapons or shoulder-fired missiles or tanks or whatever. At least most people don't. If you go back Rafi, to- Rafi, you know you're speaking to two libertarians, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. come on, man. <laughs> well, I would say like, oh, I'm speaking to our audience here, like that independent <laughs> out there. Now, Judge Ludig, who's also another very conservative justice, wrote an amicus brief in this case in which she went back to the, the actual time in which the Second Amendment was ratified. And showed that in one state after another, I mean, he went all throughout the country, there were concealed carry restrictions that were way more strict than New York. And at no point in any of the amicus briefs or the briefs on behalf of the, the pro-gun forces here, did anybody say that in ratifying the Second Amendment, people were claiming that those laws that were already on the books were unconstitutional. So to me that if I use Justice Thomas's own standard, we have a deep history of restrictions that go even further than New York, as flawed as the New York law is. I agree, Stephen, that it was silly the way it was implemented, but the court doesn't say that it was unconstitutional because only celebrities got it. They said it was unconstitutional because there shouldn't be any discretion to the person issuing those permits beyond like something objectively measurable. That's correct. I mean, the key to this case is the arbitrary nature of regulations and mandating, quote, good cause for carrying outside the home to the point that you had Justice Kavanaugh joined by John Roberts note the limits of the decision because they did state that states can still require people to get a license to carry a gun, but conditions have to be tangible, things that people can actually follow and abide by and try to meet the measure for. So fingerprinting, a background check, mental health records check, you can, you can require training in firearms handling. These are all among possible regulations, but laws like New York's, they basically basically just run into this buzzsaw of their own arbitrary language because it was clear in the intent that it was to nullify a New Yorker's Second Amendment constitutional rights, not to create a navigable regulatory framework. I mean, I think it's really crucial that we consider the actual real world impact that these laws have. Possession of an unlicensed loaded firearm is considered a violent felony per New York law. So people, even people with no criminal record who are convicted of this, who of, of possessing an unlicensed loaded firearm, face a mandatory minimum sentence of three and a half years in prison. The maximum is 15 years. Okay. This is astonishing. The New York Times editorial board called this decision, um, you know, they framed it as gun enthusiasts and manufacturers, I quote, <laughs> who sought this ruling. Um, to me, that's wrong because some of the other people who sought this ruling are racial justice advocates and criminal justice reform advocates. Because the idea 
that you could go to prison and be locked away for carrying, imprudently carrying a loaded firearm in many situations for somewhere between three and 15 years. I mean, look, there are so many issues with public safety and with policing, and we could devote hours and hours and hours of talking to that. But I just want to take it back to the fact that New York laws make it so that possessing this this loaded firearm could land you in prison for between three and 15 years. And the fact that the Supreme Court is now preventing some number of most likely men from ending up in prison for that time makes me really, really happy. Yeah, but I think this is a question, like we can always point to the how strict the enforcement of a law is and say that, you know, I'm against anybody being like, you know, abortion, for example. I think it is a guarantee, and we can bet on this, that in the next two years, there are going to be laws on the books. They could already be on the books. I'm not even sure that will send women to prison for seeking an abortion in their state or for getting one in their state. Now, that doesn't mean that per your moral and policy beliefs that abortion should be legal. It just means that, hey, we should maybe talk about like the remedy to the crime, right? So in my case, like I do think that there are really important debates about the remedy to the crime, but this, this, this case is not about the remedy. It's about the very right at issue here. And these are people purporting to be originalists who I'm, I'll read it to you. This is New Jersey at the time of the Second Amendment being ratified. It says, you may not privately wear any pocket pistol. North Carolina, no person may go nor ride armed by night. Virginia, nor may you ride armed by night or by day in fairs, markets, or other places in the county. So, like, I can go through that. There's even more states here. And these were on the books after the Second Amendment. Until 2008, the Supreme Court doesn't rule that you have an individual right to bear arms. So, if, if I'm taking Thomas said his word that this is an originalist argument i'm like where is the originalism in this where's the history here and steven like like let's take all the discretion out here and say that this let's say they passed a law like new jersey had on the books in the 1700s in the early 1800s there would be no discretion what i just read has no discretion would that be constitutional i don't know i'm not the person who decides whether it's constitutional i will tell you that i don't think about the United States of America in the 18th century and the 19th century as being a particularly free place. I don't think about uh, our cities and our, our, our states in those time periods as being beacons of freedom. I think that they were anything but. They were repressionist and totalitarian in more ways than I can count. Um, I, just, I just look at where I'm at right now and whether or not it makes sense based on the text of the Second Amendment to allow a person to go out jogging in the morning with their sidearm and go get a cup of coffee on the way. Which like in my town in Virginia, I see this almost every single day. Uh, people will just come jogging on in, they've got their sidearm, they're getting a cup of coffee. Nobody, nobody's bothered. It's, it's nothing. However, I had a scary experience once and this is not to take us in a different direction, but like I understand why this makes people uncomfortable. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, my hometown, uh, two years ago. And this was right before the pandemic. And I was sitting in a Panera Bread in Greensboro, North Carolina. And there was some sort of gun debate going on in the city. And I was having my mozzarella and tomato panini. And I look out the window of Panera. And this guy, kind of a good old boy, gets out of his truck. Uh, and he is strapped, multiple pistols on his side. He's got an AR on his back. And he is strutting towards the Panera. Uh, he's got fingerless gloves on, like everything. And I'm like, oh God, is this about to happen? I, and it was very scary. It was very scary. This guy comes in the door and he's basically just trying to make a point. He had yeah. a shirt on that said, come and take it. And uh, I mean, I thought I was going to die. Uh, and <laughs> and it's, it's, it's experiences like that where I go, this is not a kind of place that I want to. I don't want people walking around with those kinds of weapons. But you know what? Panera also had a sign on the door that said, you cannot bring firearms in. And the manager <laughs> came out and was like, you're going to have to put that back in your car. You are not allowed to bring that in here, which I'm like, all right. Here's my issue, right? Like, first of all, I agree with what you're saying about the founding. But my, my problem is this is the rationale we're given in the opinion right? We're talking about is mm -hmm. the opinion right. He's given that originalist rationale. But I would say like we were just espousing, Liz was, was espousing like the benefits of federalism when we're talking about abortion. And now I have the Supreme Court telling me and as a New Yorker, 
you know, I live in a very dense area where, like, I promise you, and Liz knows this, there are a ton of crazy motherfuckers outside of my door here. I'm not sure I want a lot of them, and I'm not sure how many of them have records that would preclude them from getting a gun under this standard. Like, I'm not sure I want to walk around in a world where I see fistfights pretty consistently. I have since I was a kid that I would want those people to have guns on the streets of New York. But I'm not convinced that this is the thing that is stopping them from having guns, right? And so we actually need to be a little bit more clear about whose hands we're keeping guns out of, because it ends up being people like me. Uh, I was attacked earlier in my pregnancy by a homeless person. I didn't talk about it publicly because I did not want to Michael Schellenberger it up and do the whole, <laughs> you know, making myself the victim here and talking about crime in cities thing based off of anecdata. But it was something that really freaked me out and made me take protecting my family and protect, protecting my body much more seriously than I had before. And so this is sort of something that I'm pursuing and something that I really, really hope New York doesn't make more difficult and more expensive for me to pursue. To me, I think like this is obviously a very difficult question of the constitutional question versus the public policy question. And I think, you know, part of what I'm reacting to here is the decision. But I do think like a lot of what you're saying, Liz, to me as, as a resident of New York is like a very valid debate about what this law should be like. And, and to be clear, I don't like the actual implementation of this law. I agree with Stephen, and I imagine you agree with this. You're not a mass incarceration person at all. I know that about you. Not a mass incarceration person. And I don't think that the Puff Daddy should get a gun and I shouldn't, you know? Or like Puff Daddy should get a gun and more accurately, you shouldn't, right? Like you have every right to make a claim to the city of New York that you have a legitimate fear of your safety, right? And I don't think that the law was being implemented that way. So from a public policy perspective, I would want to make the process way more fair. Next up, new polling and focus group data from Murmuration and Harvard's youth pollster, John Delavolpe, which sheds light on how Gen Z, which for, who are people who were born after 1996, how they think about politics, policy, culture, and the future. And at 70 million strong, Gen Z will become the largest voting bloc in the nation by 2028. And here are just a few of those findings from that poll and from the focus group. So they found that Gen Z follows politics closely and that they believe that the current political system has little to offer their generation. And despite record youth turnout in 2018 and 2020, only 30% said they would definitely be voting in the November elections compared to 60% of Americans 26 and older. Asked about their political beliefs, 41% of the so-called Zoomers describe themselves as moderate, which challenges the idea that the younger generation is dominated by Bernie progressives. And asked to rank their top issues, the Gen Z responded with four topics that almost never appear in campaign ads or stump speeches. School shootings were first, protecting access to clean water and fresh air is second, reducing gun violence and mass shootings, and then guaranteeing a quality education for every child. Stephen, let's start with you. What was your biggest takeaway from this data? I just loved how Gen Z, they are not interested. I mean, I guess this is pretty pretty comparable to a lot of different generations, but it notes how like Gen Z is not interested in their parents' jobs or the lives that their parents led. Kind of classic, you know, young people look at the olds and go, I want to be anything but that kind of result. But it actually like it really clicks nicely with findings that uh, we conducted here at Echelon Insights in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation just last year on the American dream. And this study basically found a lot of the same things which is that Gen Z just wants to redefine what it means to live a, a fulfilling and free life. And the thing that both the study that you're sharing here from Murmuration and Walton Family Foundation found was that Gen Z views financial freedom as the number one source of economic or, or well-being. So like if they're able to be financially free, then they can actually have opportunity and choices in life. That resonates. I identify with that myself as an elder millennial. There's something really great at play with this generation, which is that they really have this strong sense of irony. They have this strong sense, like there, there is this fascination that they have with, with things like The Office, where it's hard to tell whether they actually authentically like these sitcoms that millennials sort of, you know, were, were so obsessed with that everybody had the freaking Dwight Schrute shirt for a second there. <laughs> like it's, it's hard to tell whether they authentically appreciate it or whether they're making fun of us and we just don't quite realize it. But I think there's actually a great, takeaway for politics here, which is that they are interested in bespoke labels. And we see this with gender and sexuality, uh, you know, labeling and identification. 
But more than anything, they're a little suspicious of the sort of corporate wokeism that our generation has really, you know, been attracted to and been instigators of. And so you see Gen Z with their stronger sense of irony and their aesthetic frustration with this really rejecting that. And I think that will hopefully pull us in a slightly more individualistic, slightly more skeptical, cynical direction. So I, for one, welcome our new Euphoria watching overlords. I think they're wonderful. Yeah, one one interesting data point is that this is a generation that's more comfortable talking about sex, but is having less of it, which I find like a really fascinating data point. And Liz, what's interesting is you're on the youngest end of the millennial scale. I'm at the oldest end of the millennial scale. It's interesting to see how millennials and Gen Xers differ in some of these polls. Like I think Gen Xers are some of the most pessimistic people out there. And that's that's really just fascinating to wrap your head around. I think in part because I think they were hit hardest by 2008. I think they're they were entering the workforce or like it, at the point where they would be building wealth, buying a house, et cetera. They were the ones who I think were as deeply affected as anybody at that point. But what's fascinating is that Gen Z, as of this report, were very optimistic that their lives were going to be better than their parents, more optimistic than millennials. But that was right before the pandemic hit. I would be interested to see how the pandemic shaped their, their opinions. Yeah. And also part of the optimism that Gen Z expressed is also tied to their perceptions of uh, freedom and access to opportunities that their parents might have enjoyed. And in a post-row world, it's going to be very interesting to see how Gen Z views their options in life or their perception of freedom uh, based on Roe v. Wade no longer uh, being the framework under which they live, but their parents did. And we are seeing that in their attitudes being expressed on sort of sex and abstinence uh, in this piece that you had shared from Insider. There's a lot to dig into, so I'll, I'll kick it over to Liz and we can pick it apart. Well, my favorite part of that piece, which is talking all about their attitudes towards sexuality in the post-war world, was, and I think this is the perfect encapsulation of Gen Z, it was the the person who was interviewed, I'm forgetting her name, who said, you know, I'm bisexual, but honestly, now that Roe is overturned, I think I'm only going to have sex with women from here on out. This is a woman speaking. And I think it's so funny. I like want to hear and see Clarence Thomas's reaction to that little soundbite and just see or Amy Coney Barrett's and be like, is this what you guys wanted? Is this worth it to you? But I do think that's such an interesting encapsulation, right? Because the I think the millennial answer or the Gen X answer to, you know, abortion being made more difficult uh, and more scrutinized by the state is not have sex with people of your own gender per se. It's go on birth control. But, you know, that's sort of not the the trendy thing that the kids are doing these days. And and I don't know if that's reflective of a legitimate fear that Griswold will be overturned or that we will no longer have access to hormonal contraceptives so much as it is this very funny, very cool Gen Z embrace of bespoke sexualities and experimentation. And so even if they're having less sex, they're doing it in funkier and funkier ways. Yeah, Liz, I'm I'm generally like optimistic and excited that you're going to have a generation sort of advocating both for sex positivity as well as probably an enhanced sense of responsibility and consequences around the act of sex itself. I think that this is a cultural good. Now, you've got this insider article where one of the subtitles in the piece was Gen Z considering the new risks of sex. I read that and I say there were never not it risks. It was never risk free. <laughs> it, <right? laughs> it was never risk free. That that subtitle should say grappling with the timeless realities of sex that Roe v. Wade suppressed. Um, there was this this little interview in there with this girl named Adeline, and she was talking in there about how she was waiting till seventeen to start exploring intimacy. But ever since the draft decision had leaked, she has been entirely rethinking when she wanted to start having sex uh, and. Frankly, like if you're a conservative or you're just someone who's not a progressive, you might look at that and go, well, that's actually probably good uh, that something is put grounding this person in a sense of consequences, cause and effect, and they're thinking about these things. 
I'm going to give you guys both a gold star for smuggling your your abortion opinions into this segment. <laughs> and I am not going to go after them. Uh, I'm just going to note for our audiences, who, members who are like-minded with me, that I, I see those pitches. I'm going to let them go by. I do want to combine I'm in favor data. of as much bisexuality <laughs> as possible. If that means you're not aborting children, do whatever the hell you want. I give you points for the creative arguments in favor of this Dobbs decision. Uh, but I am More not going to go there. More less abortion. <laughs> I am not going to go there. I am not conceding i'm not stipulating to anything you just said <laughs> but uh let's actually combine with this with another article uh, that we plan to discuss today and as background uh this is near and dear to my heart i ran a progressive organization called arena which is a major player in progressive politics i ran it from 2006 to 2020 and during that time i had a front row seat to some infighting and meltdowns that were happening to progressive organizations throughout the country in many ways it's why i created lost debate so that we could create a place where we can have discussions like we had today. Now, there is this piece in The Intercept by Ryan Grimm that details internal strife and paralysis that's plaguing major progressive organizations. And he highlights a few different issues, but there are certain recurring themes in this piece, and I'll outline them. Number one is that there are questions about what a sufficiently diverse staff is, and I would say some really, really strong reactions if the staff doesn't think that they, they, that their overall staffing body is diverse enough or diverse enough in the ranks of leadership. There's a certain self-centeredness that Grimm describes where people are focusing on internal demands as opposed to the missions of the organizations that they're a part of. There's a desire to be all things, like to stop every time something major or even minor happens in the news that is a progressive cause and to talk about it, center it in their core mission. So a little bit of mission creep. There's this dynamic of white progressives challenging leaders of color, using the language of racial justice to push back against basic management expectations. Uh, and then there's this call-out culture where employees seem to rush to one-up each other in flogging and embarrassing those who they view who step out of line of their constantly shifting expectations. Now, he claims that there's a constellation of progressive organizations dealing with some form of the same phenomenon, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, the Sierra Club, Demos, the ACLU, Color of Change, the Movement for Black Lives, Human Rights Campaign, Time's Up, the Sunrise Movement, even the National Audubon Society. So guys, what do we make of this piece? Is he cataloging a true vulnerability on the left or is he describing issues that all organizations face? It just has its own flavor on the left. It is a particular vulnerability on the left. And it, I, I come from the, the center right world of libertarian and conservative think tanks. So I, I'm not as close to this, but you see things and you hear things out there. There is an institutional, I think, problem that the left has where the right has gotten very effective at building 501c4s, 501c3s all across Washington, DC, New York, Florida, that cultivate talent and get people into their causes, get them fellowships, work opportunities, internships, and grow them into the professionals who are now going to be pushing policy white papers uh, and staffing different congressional offices for decades to come. The infrastructure on the right, you know, this is the kind of stuff that the left always talks about, you know, the Koch brothers, right? It's widespread and effective. And these are careerists. These are people who want to work for a living. And frankly, what I see in left of center circles, characterized sort of by the, the socialist streak within them, is just this general resentment about having to work to make a living at all. They refer to themselves as the workers instead of employees. They think of themselves as wage slaves rather than as people who got an opportunity to do a job. I think that there's just a mindset difference on these two sides of the of the aisle, the left and right organizations, and you're going to get very different outcomes unless these bosses uh, and think tank leaders can actually say, like, actually, here when you come to us, our office, you're going to do you're going to do work. If you want to do organizing, you're going to have to take it out to the street. There's some funny quotes in here, and. I could say, and a lot of these are anonymous executive director quotes. I'm a non-anonymous former executive director, and I'll say that like, I agree with almost every one of these things. Here's one that made me really laugh. This is an executive director who just took over their position. It says, I just got the keys and y'all are coming after me on this shit. It's white supremacy culture. It's urgent. No motherfucker. It's election day. We can't move that day. Just do your job or go somewhere else. I mean, I, there's just one quote like this after another. And I, I want to shout out my staff. My staff never gave me these issues. But like I interacted with tons of organizations that had these issues. And I would say that the EDs often are great. 
it's their it's this rank and file staff and then the funders who don't step in and protect the executive directors and they're not effective because of this. I mean, we see this dynamic entirely with cancel culture where there's people who at the upper echelons of management, you know, at the very highest levels are not willing to actually stand by their employees and properly sift through evidence and adjudicate situations where junior level employees are pissed off at one person's conduct or their speech or what they said in a tweet five years ago. We have this huge issue where people, and and this has been said so many times before in so many different venues, but it bears repeating until it gets through people's thick skulls (laughs) that, you know, you have to grow a backbone, you have to grow a spine, and you have to defend your employees. You do not have to defend them in all circumstances. If they legitimately do something that's, that's quite awful, that hinders your ability to be a successful workplace and to do a success, do a project, the project that you came here to do, if somebody is hindering that, it's fair to ax them. But in a lot of situations, the criticism that people are getting is not doled out judiciously. It's oftentimes very much uh, tethered to the whims of the day and the specific pet issues that people have. And it is management's job to set the standard and to tell employees, hey, this is like juvenile, this is college freshman behavior, and maybe this was tolerated at a different workplace, but we want to be effective. And if you're here and you're paid a salary, you need to also share in that mission. For a, for a funny example of how this happens uh, outside of the nonprofit world, on the Blocked and Reported podcast this week, uh, hosted by Katie Herzog and Jesse Single, they dove into this controversy around a Philadelphia coffee shop called Mina's World. And Mina's World basically has run into this situation where the owners of this uh, co-op coffee shop focused on being a queer haven uh, in a gentrifying community is basically being seized by its employees because there was an incident where a couple of black kids came into the coffee shop and stole the tip jar. And because uh, they chased them down and got the money back, the employees are now saying that this is a threatening workplace uh, for you know all sorts of, of mishmats of, of, of minority groups. And basically now the owners have been making these videos trying to raise money, and they're like hostage videos, raise money to buy the business that's an entirety and then give it to their employees as a, a as a form of being accountable. So <laughs> it's just like you're seeing this stuff happen everywhere. Uh, and it comes from the same kind of language of like workers revolution Marxism. Uh, you just can't get away from it. If it's in the culture, it's in the culture. Unbelievable. I, and I would say that as a former school principal, what makes me really sad is that this has permeated the entire education reform community, where now there are ideas like Robin D'Angelo's ideas and uh, Kendi's ideas about how like expecting people to show up on time or to do math or to use the scientific method is somehow racist. Right. And I think that dovetails. It's white supremacist ideology. Yeah. Like it's called white supremacism or a symptom of white supremacy. Right. And I think it was the San Francisco School Board, which we've covered a ton, said that it's not learning loss. It's learning change. Right. So it's like (laughs) it's somehow racist to describe like how shitty our education system is to people of color and lower income people. So it's circular. Right. Like it's it's unbelievable. It's destructive. And it makes me sad as a former progressive operator who has real problems with the direction of some of the most powerful forces on the right, I look at them and I say they are effectively telling people, hey, you may not love the world we're bringing you, but do you want to live in a world where you're being punished for things you you either did say and mistakenly or didn't say or didn't know were bad, couldn't live up to the shifting expectations? Like, I think this was like something that I think started with Kavanaugh, although Liz, I have a different kind of opinion about the, the the concrete details probably of Kavanaugh hearing than you did. I do think that that was the beginning of a concerted effort to be like, that could be your son. And I think the, the evolution of that argument has been really effective to be like, it could be your son, it could be you. You could be Alexi McCammon, you could be Don McNeil, you could be that person in that coffee shop, right? And I think that's an effective argument politically. And I think it's superseding a lot of other policy issues. I think people really have done such a poor job of tallying up the the human cost, the human toll of all of this, of just this dysfunction. People who are high performing, like you, frankly, Ravi, they don't want to be a part of this. They don't want to have to deal with this. They want to devote their time and talent to things that are higher impact. And 
maybe that won't push them to become, you know, you're not going to be pushed to become a Federalist Society operative anytime soon, right, Robbie. Right. But I think you're tapping into something really important, which is that they're they're squandering their shot at top talent. And that's something where even though I don't support a lot of these progressive causes, I want them to be the strongest they can possibly be. Because I think our country is made so much healthier when we have these two rival dueling forces that are strong and forceful and cogent and thorough, who are at each other's throats uh, in a manner that's productive and that really allows some of the ideological conflicts that we all feel to surface. And instead, we have the lowest IQ, lowest common denominator <laughs> form of that that's currently happening. And I just think, where do we go from here? No place good, no place I want to go. Well, and so more than anything, I hope they become stronger because we, we need really, really good stalwart progressive organizations. And this is why we need deep political reforms. I mean, the, the frustration from a lot of these different factions is coming from the sense that you cannot work within the system, that the system is immovable, and that the, therefore the system needs to be burned down. So you see that in government, you see it in politics, and then you see it sprinkle out into these nonprofits, just the idea that dismantling is what needs to happen. And I, that's why I deeply believe like we need a series of top level political reforms in this country, things like expanding the house, we need to have constitutional conventions again to like reestablish and debate and talk about what our rights are and what the what kind of government we want in this day and age. I think that we actually just need to do the job of running our own country because when we don't, basically it just squanders. Well, Stephen, talking about the dueling forces we have in this country, let's end on this New Yorker cover that you flagged for us. Uh, you want to describe what this is? It's glorious. Yes. So the cover of the July 4th edition of The New Yorker is something just really special, y'all. So uh, their new cover, which is linked in the show notes, and it will be on our social media for you to see, uh, depicts two neighboring townhomes right down the middle, row houses like you would see in DC or New York. Now on the left, you have this home with an American flag, an eccentric, very full and vibrant garden, a Black Lives Matter sign, and of course, a in this house, we believe in science, et cetera, et cetera, sign, a free, you know, leave one, take one book box, and a liberal lounging in a camping hammock on the front porch. It's a, it's a beautiful, you know, DC, U Street kind of scene. Now, on the right, you have an American flag, a very clean cut sharply trimmed lawn and bushes, a few flowers, but not one, but two security cameras, one of which is a ring doorbell and a door sign that says, smile, you're on camera, as well as a thin blue line sign and a thank a veteran for your freedom yard sign, all topped off with a red hat wearing guy lounging on a front porch swing, drinking Miller Lite. Uh, according to the to the New Yorker, these are your two Americas. Uh, so I'm curious what my co-hosts think of the cover. What does it get right or wrong? Well, I mean, I think Coors Edge is much better than Miller Lite, just personally. So I think his beer choice is so far. But no, I mean, there's there's such an inherent condescension to this, right? There's this sense of like, oh, like, who do you want to be chilling with? The cool bohemian people who are just relaxing with the hammock or the like, security apparatus, psycho paranoid freak. And it's not quite as heavy handed as that. But I mean, it's just to me, it feels like a caricature. It feels dumb. I also can't think of any sort of Tony upper crust, brownstone -y, townhouse type neighborhood in America where I've ever seen a back the blue sign. Like I hang out in DC a lot. I hang out in New York a lot. My parents used to live in San Francisco. Never seen a back the blue sign there. Frankly, I don't want to and I don't need to. But I'm just saying, even the caricature is implausible. Well, I, I, I was telling you all this offline. I, in Staten Island, where I grew up, this feels similar to what I see. You know, there, there are pretty stark differences from one house to the next in a very visual way. And there are back the blue signs. There are Black Lives Matter signs. Obviously, this is a simplification and the author who I, I want to credit or discredit, depending on what your opinion is here, is Chris Ware. And when he was interviewed about this, he said, back in the old days of the George W. Bush administration, I lived in Oak Park, Illinois. So just to put a mm -hmm. town on it, this is where he's thinking about. And I would regularly pass a corner with two houses. One house's yard was decorated with Obama campaign size, and the other was the other with McCain. I wanted to just make an observation about like what 
what you see maybe versus like author's intent. Because one of the interesting conversations that I saw in the comments thread under that guy when he posted the New Yorker cover was a lot of people looking at the yard for the liberal, the overgrown, very full garden and saying, wait, liberals don't take care of their yards. We take very good care <laughs> of our yards. And I, I looked at that and I saw a meticulously gardened area with a lot of different variety of plant life. I didn't look at it as mismanagement. I looked at it as eclectic choices of what could, you know, go into your space, whereas the conservative wanted just sort of very, very neat and tidy. But I also think of liberals as nervous Nellies. I think of liberals as far more likely to have the ring doorbell and the security camera than the conservative with the back the blue sign, because I think of that guy as having a gun under his belt. <laughs> He's <laughs> he's going to shoot you if you come in. He doesn't care if you're walking around. <laughs> but I think I think you're tapping into something important, which is that like we see big city elite educated liberals as nimbies. Uh, we see them as people who have that ring doorbell, who perhaps, you know, will will talk big talks about defund the police type initiatives, but ultimately you know, if they become the victim of crime, they'll hand over that ring doorbell surveillance footage in a second, right? So I think I think there's perhaps these two groups are not quite as far apart as they fancy themselves. And, you know, I don't know the appropriate way to convey that in the New Yorker cover. I don't think that that's what he was aiming to convey. But I do think it's an important truth that we all sort of have to sit with sometimes. Well, yeah. And to send us off on this, this is a, a Twitter user named Jonathan Burke. He said, this month's cover of The New Yorker makes us realize we have more in common than we think. Both neighbors are on the same planning board Zoom meeting opposing new multifamily housing down the streets, which I think we can all agree yeah. that they're probably <laughs> at that meeting together. Well, I want to thank you, Stephen and Liz. We'll be back at this next week for listeners for one more week with the three of us before the regular team comes back. Loved this debate. Loved this discussion. This is what we're about. If you're listening, and you like what you hear, go on and give us a, a five-star rating on uh, whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts and be back with us next week. We'll have one episode next week and then we'll be back with our two episodes every week after that. We will see you later and stay safe out there.